Welcome back to the show and um, attendant to uh, Super Bowl festivities this weekend uh, in D.C. in advance of the impeachment uh, trial, the 2.0 version uh, over the president's alleged incitement to riot. We had a uh, rioting in the nation's capital, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, chanting burn it down, assaulting police, battering police. No arrest made because we don't arrest people who commit crimes uh, depending on their particular cause. Uh, but it um, uh, left me thinking about uh, Black Lives Matter week in most of our government schools throughout the country last week. And this uh, running discussion of uh, equality versus equity, do, do people, are people getting their minds around this uh, evolution, if you will, in the rhetoric of the left, of the Marxist, from equality to equity? What's the difference? Why is it important? To help us with that, we're pleased to be joined again by Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, who's written a piece for The Spectator on the very subject, What Exactly Does Equity Mean? Peter, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So let me define it in a way that is most favorable to the moving party, and uh, you tell me if that's uh, a fair or unfair. Equity and, and the evolution from equality. Equality means uh, equal before the law, but it didn't give people who were historically discriminated against, even enslaved, a stake in America. Equity, think of equity in your home or equity in a business. It's a financial stake in America. So what we need to do to remedy the ills of the past is to move beyond equality and into equity where we're conferring disadvantaged people a stake in America. And what's wrong with that? Well, that's a very accurate description of what equity now means in the hands of uh, the progressive left and our president and vice president. What's wrong with it? Well, there's nothing wrong with wanting people to acquire wealth. They have to have a stake in acquiring that wealth. It's not something that can just be given to them, or if it is just given to them, then it ceases to be equity. It becomes a kind of... Um, Super welfare, I guess. Well, you call it you call it welfare or, or equity. I call it or, or reparations. Call it what you will. But you say, well, wait a second. The people who have got so illicitly, and so the people that have not were precluded illicitly. So this is the way to make it right, and we need this uh, third party intermediary called government to uh, to make it right. Well, it's a theory, and of course, the people who did not acquire wealth because they were enslaved or imprisoned or in other ways disadvantaged in generations past, there really isn't much you can do about that. They, they have had their lives, they're come and gone. So what we're really talking about today is transmitting through the generations a sense that uh, you can be paid back today for what your ancestors suffered. There is a certainly a, a large sense in which one would want every American to try to develop equity. It's something that you win by dint of your own hard work and savings and determination to uh, move ahead. Uh, to think that government can create equity out of thin air, I think, is just mistaken. Of course, government can transfer dollars out of thin air, apparently, but that's not the same thing as having a deep investment in something that you've built through your own hard work. Do you think that the combination of the 1619 Project plus uh, decisions by courts or the Department of Justice not to pursue really overtly racist admissions policies, uh, or not to adjudicate in favor of the plaintiffs and the, with respect to the courts and the Biden Department of Justice uh, dropping the case against the Yale with respect to their admissions policies. I mean, is that um, 
moving us further away from any possibility of getting back to uh, the idea of racial equality, the content of one's character construct? Uh, are we inevitably, oh. in, in, in your view, moving towards a new racial order, sort of a new Jim Crow? Well, I'm not so sure I would want to use the word inevitably, but it's definitely a push in that direction. And it's very hard to undo some of these decisions once they've been made. We are indeed facing a world in which higher education is a racial uh, favoritism system, and the courts appear to be ready to let that stand. But certainly, to the extent that there was a strong case against it with the Justice Department backing out of Yale, um, I would think that we're certainly due for another generation or so of uh, racial preferences as the operating procedure of the at least the elite side of American life. And so uh, if that's the case, if uh, we're not uh, where Sandra Day O'Connor thought we might be uh, when she uh opined in the University of Michigan case around the turn of the century, if we're actually going in quite the opposite direction she anticipated, as things get uh, more equal, uh, races, race and other identifying characteristics become more pronounced, more of a basis for conference of benefits or assignment of responsibilities, not less, then, um, right. you know, wh 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 where does that ultimately end, do you, do you suspect, for higher education and for every other institution that is uh, set up to... Uh, do just that, confer or impose based on race or gender or gender orientation or whatever? Anything other well, than merit? Well, I mean, we, we end up with a system of, of uh, privileged uh, identity groups, privileged meaning pretty much the opposite of how it's used by the activists these days, but there is a, a privilege to be uh, had out of claiming victimhood and uh, that that undermines any notion of there being objective and fair standards that apply to um, everyone alike. Sandra Day O'Connell was grievously mistaken in her Gruder decision in 2003. Uh, she said the clock had to run out until uh, 2028, by which time America would be ready to say goodbye to <laughs> racial preferences. But Racial preferences uh, institutionalize themselves. The more of them we have, the more of them people will want. And uh, that's, I think, the direction in which we're headed. Um, hey, this, there's sort of a running conversation um, about whether to uh, sort of withdraw to your on to you know for people to withdraw to their enclaves or uh, pitch the battle uh, on the other side's turf. And so when it comes to higher ed, that would mean do I, as a conservative, do I limit my choices in higher education to, you know, University of Dallas and Grove City College and Hillsdale, or do I go to the Ivy Leagues if I can get in? Do I go to uh, some of the, a state school? Do I go to some very, very left, small, private liberal arts college and uh, fight the battle there? What should I do? I think you're faced with some very hard choices in, in those matters. Um, I also think that we are likely to see the rise of more alternate institutions, other Hillsdales and Grove Cities and University of Dallas's, where people can go expecting that they will be treated, uh, regardless of what their racial background is, uh, fairly. That's um, uh, a movement that's afoot and one that I think will uh, gather steam as we see 
these uh, legacy universities, despite in many cases having big endowments, uh, we will see them begin to fade. They can't live off their uh, cultural capital forever. They uh, can debase themselves only so much before their reputations begin to slide. Right now, I would say if somebody gets into Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, no matter what, they should go. But uh, that's not going to last for much longer. He is Peter Wood, President of the National Association of Scholars. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.